0: Hey friends, before we dive into the show, I've got something for you. Fellow doctors, entrepreneurs, professionals, busy people in general. Sometimes getting a meal in is difficult and we miss it. It happens, but we need to fuel our body with what it needs to be productive. And let's not forget, eating is important to look after our basic health. I want to tell you about Y food. It's a balanced, simple and wholesome, ready to drink meal yes meal that means it does keep you full for about five hours making sure you don't become unproductive or hangry but also it's packed with 26 vitamins and minerals and a whole 33 grams of protein they're not joking about when they say a meal I've dropped their link in the description with a 10% discount code check it out let's head back to the show hey everyone welcome back
1: to another episode of the in show I hope you've all been keeping well this week, we have with us another amazing guest. We have with us Dr. Fazana, who is a consultant radiologist and the CEO and co-founder of Haksa Red, who is doing wonderful and incredible things. Um, it's a massive, massive pleasure to have you on the show today, Fazana. How are you? Yeah, to the good. Show. Yeah, thank
2: you for having me.
1: Now, so if people were to search you, they would see you've done many wonderful things, had a very diverse career. At one point, you were even a surgical trainee, and then we're going to dive into that a bit later and then obviously turn to you know radiology but we want to take it all the way back to the very beginning a young Farzana who's embarking on this journey to pursue medicine and become a doctor so tell us about that bit when you kind of decided you wanted to be a doctor
2: yeah sure um so my parents like uh, many others are immigrants they're from Bangladesh um they came to the UK uh, in the 70s and, uh, you know, came, came with nothing, a very kind of immigrant story. Um, so when I was born, we used to live in a, in a bedsit. We had, you know, we didn't have central heating, we had a heater. Uh, and they always, I think, you know, a few things, they always worked really, really hard. They had really big dreams. So, you know, they they worked hard, built a life for themselves. And so I think from a young age, I really learned from them the importance of, I think, thinking big, um, mm. solving problems, working really, really hard. Uh, And then when I got to, you know, A levels, medicine seemed like quite a natural career. I liked science, didn't really want to do a science degree. Um, And my grandfather, my parents weren't doctors, but my grandfather in Bangladesh had been a doctor as well. So, you know, that was always kind of in the family. Um, Yeah, so I embarked on medicine after uh, work experience uh, shadowing an anaesthetist. And I think one of the first operations I saw was a TURP. Which left okay. me. Quite hard. <laughs> um, I was like sixteen, and I remember the um, anesthetist was like, you know, he was talking about uh, diathermy, and he was like, you know, it just smells like a kebab, and oh I just I could not kebabs <laughs> like three years <laughs> after that. So anyway, um, so yeah, I decided to then apply for medicine, and I did, um, and I started a Guys, um, which is. Uh, it was kind of UMDF, but, you know, um, became King's.
1: King's. That's where, we, that's where we trained. Did
2: you do dissection in Bolton?
1: House?
2: Yeah. When did, did, did you do dissection? It wasn't in Bowland House, actually. It, it was, was in
1: Hodgkins. Hodgkins, that's it. Hodgkins, Hodgkins. yeah. I think King's was, like, um, famous for, like, their the real anatomy, their real dissections, because a lot of medical schools did prosections or, like, they did, like, fake models. Yeah. I still remember like that formaldehyde, that burning, stinging sensation in your eyes. But It's, it's an experience, to say the least, for sure. Yeah, exactly,
2: <laughs> and that smell. Even if you talk about it now, you can still smell it. Yeah. Like, it's so like, yeah. It's, uh, but I you know, it's really
0: good, yeah. <laughs> Walk us through um, medical school. Walk us through what it was like, the challenges, the highs, the lows. Uh, medical school is, is so many years that we spend in our lives, right? And different students have different exposures, different... Um, moments that are memorable. Um, Walk us through medical school.
2: Yeah, um, medical school was good. So I really enjoyed it. I, you know, made some really good friends. Um, had a lot of fun. But when I got to medical school, I I felt like I was really out of my depth. And I think that happens Mm. for a lot of medical students when you when you start medical school, you're used to being, you know, academically proficient. Um, and then you get to medical school and you're suddenly surrounded by lots of really really clever people. So I remember feeling quite intimidated um and just thinking god people are so clever I'm, I'm i'm not as clever as them and i think that was my overwhelming memory certainly for like the mm. first couple of years um i think it's very common for women I, I see it when um you know when i became a consultant and i would see like mm. radiology trainees come through i really recognized um that when i saw like young female trainees who would who would just be like i, I don't know I, I don't know enough so that that was my thing i was like i don't mm. know enough i'm not doing enough um that was certainly when I started medical school, and then when we moved on to clinical work, that was a lot more interesting. I found the preclinical work, like I just the Krebs cycle, I just could not find it interesting, <laughs> you know, and which fell like all. <laughs> um, but as soon as we got to clinical medicine, then I actually found it really interesting. Had some brilliant, brilliant teachers, um, and yeah, was 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 at Guys a lot, uh, St Thomas's, mm-hmm. and then did a little bit of stuff at Kings as well, and um, yeah, really, really enjoyed. The clinical side of things and I think I eased into feeling a bit more like I had chosen the right path when I got to that point in med school
1: definitely Mm -hmm. tell us now looking back in hindsight what advice would you give to young girls then, in particular that may come from immigrant backgrounds or may come from a household where the parents may not be as educated and you do feel a bit overwhelmed and out of depth what advice would you give to them because we always hear it I think it's nice to kind of share your experience of what you can advise to them
2: yeah, I think um, it's that thing, like right? imposter syndrome. Mm. And I really had that when I was younger and I don't have it anymore. And that's just because I realised I deserve to be there. And I think mm. that's what I didn't have when I was younger. And I think about, you know, and I think, you know, I'm sure you guys have this, when you think about how, how hard your parents worked, like the mm. racism they faced. You know, my parents, I grew up in in the 80s and 90s. Like That's when, you know, they mm. would have this threat of violence. Um, and so when I remember everything that my family went through, then you just think, of course, I deserve to be here. Um, and I think, you you know, feeling that the, you know, the hopes of of all the people before you who worked as hard as they did to get you where you are, that's, I think for me, that stops me with imposter syndrome completely. Um, so that's a little different to, you know, just feel like you deserve to be there. I think, I think of course you do. You've worked hard and, you know, fake it till you make it. If you're still <laughs> not confident, just fake it till you make it.
1: Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. You do deserve to get it because, it is a hard graph getting into medical, sitting those exams. Um, and then to kind of say that like you deserve it, you've, all the sacrifices you've made and your family have made for you to be where you are. Um, I think that kind of puts things into perspective. So, yeah, I do agree with that and resonate with that, actually.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's a story with a lot of people. And I think it's not, you know, not just if you're a if you're, you know, a young woman. I think it's just with everyone. And that's one of the things that so we have a we have a scholarship that we started at Hexrad. Um, mm-hmm. which we can talk about later but really is about recognizing people you know for the value that they bring and that people from different backgrounds bring so much stuff to medicine and just making sure that everyone is at that same starting line because not everyone mm. um yeah mm-hmm. and I think even in medical school there's lots of data about you know widening participation after you graduate specialties see, the glass ceiling that exists in hospital mm. management still today, when you look at the number of um, doctors and you look at who's actually like, who are the CEOs, who are the people making decisions. So it's certainly not a problem that we've fixed yet.
0: Has the environment become more supportive for females in particular? Because it's been many years now, we're in 2022, we're seeing so many programs and campaigns and um, different, uh, what is it, uh, projects pop up where they're supporting females in certain things that, where they're not getting certain support. Um, Has it really changed or are they just uh, sort of covers and plasters over the cracks?
2: Um, I think it definitely has changed for for women, yeah, for sure. So my first Mm. boss, when I became a house officer, was a surgeon and she was one of the first um, female general surgeons. Uh, And she said that when she applied to medical school, there were quotas for women. (laughs) And so I think since then, I think things have, have definitely really improved, but I think There is still, you know, there's a disproportionate number of people who went to private school. You know, Mm. there are barriers to people from different backgrounds, races, disabilities. Uh, But yeah, I I do think things have definitely improved for women.
0: No, definitely. And Mm. we
1: hope things do continue to improve. Having gone through medical school, kind of getting over this imposter syndrome, realising that you deserve to be here Mm. um, and kind of taking it in your stride and making the most out of medical school. Tell us a bit more about foundation training house officer, senior house officer. You mentioned that, you know, you probably did a surgical station. How was that experience?
2: Yeah, I, lo- I loved working. So I loved my, um, it was, it was F1. I was, I think the first year where it was called F1. Okay. 2005. And, um, yeah, I loved it. It was really good. I had a brilliant cohort of people. I did my house job at Lewisham hospital. Uh, so that mm. was F1 and then F2, I was at King's. Um, and both of them were were really good i just had the best bosses and it was it was at the time when we still had i think i did a, a band 3 rotor in one of my jobs so it was um difficult hours but i think what's really mm. different for junior doctors now is that you don't have that continuity of team so we mm. worked really long hours but so did the people everyone on our team so you know after each firm i remember we'd get taken out for dinner They'd like you know our bosses would like buy um us like presents they were just so nice Um, yeah really common and when i speak to junior doctors now they just look at me like yeah that's never happened to us (laughs)
1: yeah
2: they were like in a lift and their bosses their name Um, (laughs) that made it actually made it really fun so we worked hard but um but i really really enjoyed those first two years
1: yeah i think amazing i remember speaking to a lot of senior colleagues and they said like you mentioned, the hours are hard. The job was tough, but there there was a sense of unity and everyone in it together. Yeah, and kind of were stuck with the same firm. I think it was called back then, and it kind of got through it. And and it was a little stuff, buying coffee, going up for dinner and lunch, and sitting together as a team, which I think is so so different to how it is now, where gene yeah. adopters kind of they have their own little clique, and then the do their own thing, and the consultants are kind of never to be seen, right? Mm. And, and there's that disunity, and you know consultants are missing half the time, stuff and stuff. And I do think maybe a lot of the the difficulties junior doctors face, obviously, there's other issues, is that team morale that we don't have. Like I'm sure you had before.
2: Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, when in my first job, we they, we got like a, <clears throat> a printout from the secretary of our rotor, and I remember at like eleven o'clock on one of the days, it said coffee with the consultant, and it was just like, so amazing. <laughs> Right. And I remember just being like, What does this mean? <laughs> and, <laughs> and then in the roaster, so it was in it was in her like job, it was a standing appointment, no patients could be booked then. And then we would just go and like she would buy coffee for the whole team and we would then sit and have to make chit chat. And <laughs> um, you know, I, I remember in the beginning just finding the whole thing a little bit awkward. But actually it really helped because you had this one on one time and when I, I remember the biggest mistake I made when I was a house officer when, I, I missed a blood result for a patient who ended up getting really sick. And I was really mm. upset about it. And I remember my boss, he just called me into her office. She made me a cup of coffee. She had a coffee machine. She sat down, she was like, have a biscuit. And then we just had a chat. Um, and I think those are the things I didn't realise then, like how lucky I was to be part of a cohort of doctors that had that experience because it doesn't sound mm. to me, I don't know what, about you guys, like, what it was like when you started, but um, it doesn't sound like that's what the, the junior doctor experience is now. Yeah.
1: So two things: yeah. <laughs> when junior doctors get rotors now, instead of coffee, there's loads of gaps. <laughs> so you're already thinking crap. How am I going to do some call by myself? And the the second thing is still it'll be it be wrong for us to say that it doesn't happen. There are still rotations where mm. there is that team unit, and you kind of look after each other, and the register do buy lunch and breakfast. And I had my first rotation mm. as a surgeon. But when you were talking about this, the one thing that came to my mind, I wanted to ask was. When you come from kind of an ethnic minority or a background that isn't so educated or financially well-off, I've had people say to me, they feel intimidated when they are speaking to consultants or their other counterparts, cause they don't, they don't feel they're good enough. Mm. Despite getting from med school, you know, people like I, the way I speak English is finally I've got an accent. So you're obviously a consultant, consultant radiologist. What advice would you give to those people that do feel a bit overwhelmed and nerve wracking to have these conversations and this kind of coffee with consultants or seniors?
2: It's completely understandable if you feel if you feel intimidated, that's really normal. Um, but make yourself have those conversations. It is really important. Mm. The more you have them, the less intimidated that you will feel. Um, and, you know, I learned that from my dad who, you know, came and he you know built himself up. He, you know, got a good job, built his own practice. Mm. Um, he's a, kind of in, in finance, he's an accountant. And I just saw from him, he just he just went for it. And I think Mm. that's the thing is if you're not at the table, you will not be part of the conversation. So just elbow your way in, do it, sit there. And if you think people are judging you on your accent, so what? Like, you know, like your accent is just a a sign of where you grew up and what you've been through. Um, You know, just wear it with pride.
0: Mm.
2: I think it's when people feel shame when they feel shame about it shame about your background or just shame that you're somehow not good enough Where you didn't go on skiing holidays when you were a kid yeah. like mm. you know, who cares like you know just get <laughs> out of the table and whatever feels uncomfortable uh and I've certainly learned this whatever whatever feels uncomfortable push yourself to do it like you know if it, it's in the uncomfortable space that you grow
0: I wanted to ask a little bit about so you mentioned making a, a mistake as an F1 so we're in October now where some of the F1s Um, have uh, embedded within the teams quite well and I've had that experience as well and I think every F1, every doctor of every grade Mm -hmm. will have that experience. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how you deal with clinical mistakes? What's the important thing to reflect on? Because when I made a mistake, uh, I know it ruined my confidence for quite some time Um, and it took uh, one of my senior mentors to sit me down and say, look, this happens and it took a little bit of coaching essentially. Um, to get my confidence back to the levels that i have now i see um but yeah walk us through what it what it felt like and your process to sort of looking after the confidence levels your clinical sort of confidence as well
2: um, yeah i mean at the time i felt like terrible it, honestly it felt like my world had ended because like the patient mm-hmm. was really sick um and i hadn't spotted it so it's not like it's not like my husband's a lawyer he makes <laughs> a mistake like you know <laughs> this was an actual mistake someone <laughs> yeah. at the end um so a few things and I'm not sure I really did cope with it that well when I was when I was a junior doctor. I remember I just I cried <laughs> mm. and it was my boss who sat me down uh and gave me some perspective. But I would say now, having you know, it's been a long time since then, I would say, first of all, if you feel bad it shows you're human and that's a good thing, and we should nurture that in doctors. It means that we care. Uh, and so that's a good thing. Um, and if we get, to, if you get to the point where you're making mistakes that affect patients and you don't feel bad, that's when you should really, really worry. So I think that's it's completely mm. normal to feel bad. I think give yourself some space, let yourself feel the emotion, feel. But don't let that those you know I think sometimes those ugly voices can rear up. The ones that you, you've always you know your inner critic, but you're always talking about you're just not good enough. You're this. You've made this. You know, mm. you're catastrophizing things know i think it's time to just rein that in and in medicine you just make mistakes i'm a radiologist now so when we make mistakes it's documented on our (laughs) for everybody to see that we missed something or you know something wasn't wasn't there so you just have to understand that that's part of the process and that from each time Mm. you learn so you know mistakes probably have made me a much better doctor than i would have been and yeah. that's not to say that, you know, we practice in that way, but, you know, you always remember your mistakes. Like now I'm talking mm-hmm. to you guys, you know, that happened to me in 2005. I could not tell you about the other patients who I did a good job on, but I remember that patient's name. I remember it so clearly and it impacted mm. my whole practice going forward. So just, you know, this is just part of being a doctor. Um, don't get in your head too much. So just, you know, and find support as well. You know, senior doctors, everyone's made a mistake. So find someone who, as you did, said, was like you know, talk to somebody. Mm if you're feeling overwhelmed.
1: Mm. Absolutely. And I think um, what you mentioned about human nature is always remember the negative, the bad things in our lives. We we never remember the good things, right? We remember the exams we failed, the things we forgot, the mistakes we made. And I think I was really somewhere, if you take a step back and look at the things you did do well, did do right, that is a good way to get that burst of confidence that you may start lacking Mm. post um, errors um, and mistakes. Kind of moving on from foundation training I saw you did a stint as a as a surgical trainee mm. before going into radiology. So tell us a bit more about that phase of your life.
2: Yeah, sure. So I was caught up in um, something called MTAS, <laughs> which <laughs> you guys probably don't remember. Long <laughs> time ago, it was 2000 and what year, it was 2007, something like that. Uh, and so this was the first iteration and run through training uh, where mm. before that you would basically apply for jobs. Then you would do like A&E and then you'd eventually apply for a training number. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do in mtas so i but i kind of knew i didn't want to do medicine i wasn't really mm. sure about GP and i hadn't really i just didn't consider any of these other specialties <laughs> so surgery um and, and i didn't get a job in mtas and i honestly felt like my world had ended it was the first time i didn't get like a job or well, you know i hadn't done anything It was fine it was medicine i mean mm. obviously you got jobs before but i remember just feeling like such a failure just thinking you know i didn't i didn't get this job my career is over i mean it was nonsensical i was 26 <laughs> but at the time it was it was um it was a bit of a mess anyone from the mtas fiasco remembers you know you, there was no like there was no oversight they lost your people like lost your applications you know mm-hmm. they just the whole thing was a real big mess. So i ended up taking um like whatever job i could which was a surgical like just a rotation and and then and then i just took a step back and thought well what do i actually want to do so at the time, it felt like it was the worst thing in the world, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me because for the first time, I just took stock. I, I For a long time, I think, especially in medical school, you kind of go with the crowd, right? Like Everyone is doing the same thing. You're doing it for a really long time. You're almost on this factory where you're just going through and following the motions, and along the way, you're just ranked along everybody else, right? So they're like, you're number 30 yeah. out of 300 and whatever. Um, so actually, through MTAS, I just gave me the opportunity to think, okay, what do I want to do? I thought, well, radiology looked quite interesting. And it also just gave me confidence because if you told me before MTAS, like, what's the worst thing that could happen? It would be that I, I didn't get a job. Uh, mm. And anyway, then the worst thing happened and I was okay. It was fine. Uh, I didn't get a job, but it was all right. And, and that was just such a valuable experience for me because I started to like I started to stop being scared of rejection and failure. Uh, it just changed my mindset completely Uh, and then it just meant that i just started going for things a lot more so that's when i decided to apply for radiology i got into radiology and yeah that's when i started
0: what was the um vibes and energy around radiology during that time because right now it is really popping off amongst the trainees we're seeing people flying into radiology what was it like when you were applying and transitioning over
2: it was it was um it was a relatively competitive specialty to get into so, um, so I remember being really nervous that, you know, I didn't have the right CV, all of that stuff. Um, but it was, it was, it was kind of started gaining traction, gaining popularity. People like me yeah. who had been like, hadn't really thought about what they wanted to do, but didn't really think they wanted to do primary care. So, yeah, it started, it started getting more popular and everyone was talking about interventional radiology. So that's the thing. Yeah. I was, I'm going to be an interventional radiologist. Obviously, I wasn't. An <laughs> After six months, I decided I was just like, no, I don't want to do intervention. <laughs> but that was a time when intervention was really like, you know, kicking off. I was like, oh, so cool. Um, so, yeah, so it was, it was a very, very popular specialty. But like everything in medicine, whatever you do, there's always going to be someone who's going to say to you, you know, that's really hard. or That's really competitive. Um, mm. It's just very standard. So I, think I would just say whatever you're and, you know, whatever you're doing, just yeah. Like medics do like to write each other up in that way. They're like, that's really mm-hmm. hard. Your job is going to be really hard to get. Just ignore it. Just go for it. Yeah.
0: I think Amazing the, advice. Sometimes
1: I feel medics are like the, the worst enemies. Like they just put your things and like, it's, I don't want to say toxic culture, but, you know, they're not conducive to careers at times, let's say.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, So you kind of embark on this journey of radiology the the first question I have, and it's a personal question, is how on earth do you learn all of the anatomy in the body and the pathology? Like, it's crazy. Like, y- you know, like when I see reports, I'm thinking, like, how did they do? What's the structure? What's the flow? Like, <laughs> tell us a bit about that, and then we we'll can kind of go back to your journey. Yeah,
2: sure. I mean, when you start with radiology, you're like a medical student. You are completely useless. Like, you know, like <laughs> you, you started as, uh, you know, your training in A and E. You can do stuff. Uh, you can put in mm. a cannula. You can see patients. In radiology you can do nothing so you start and then you just start scrolling through some scans and you're like that's a brain okay and and, uh, and and no one expects you to do anything either so you have a lot of time to learn there are quite a lot of exams so then mm. well, actually there were when i did them i think they've changed actually i think there are now two mm. big exams when i did them they were like i think uh like an exam in your first year six exams and oh, then wow. a final exit exam that had three parts. So, were, so, so basically, you ha- the way you learn is because you keep doing exams. Okay, <laughs> you have to revise for the exams. <laughs> so you get there, and everyone gets there. No,
1: that's, that, that's incredible. I, I imagine there is there's, there's a structure, there is a flow. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I've learned, despite what people say about training, when it works, it works well.
2: Yeah. Especially yeah.
1: in this country, yeah. Exactly.
2: Radiology, definitely. People, you know, everyone learn in that way. So, you know, the, the training is really structured in that way or certainly was for me actually Uh, I don't know it'd be interesting to speak to radiology trainees now to see how they feel their training is but I imagine they feel probably it's more structured than you know surgeons for example have a really difficult time of training because they have to they have to get theatre time in and that's not really accounted for radiology in some ways is a little easier it's a little bit more structured I think
1: yeah definitely and it may be the reason as to why it's super popular and I think radiologists other than trying to get a scan done, have the least problems with everyone else in the hospital. <laughs> they seem like a good bunch. <laughs> but the, the, the follow on question was at what point in your career do you start diversifying, start doing things outside of medicine? Not necessarily outside of medicine, but outside of the day job.
2: So I think I was, so radiology training is five years. Um, and so about halfway through, or i think i would finished like a one big set of exams i did start to realize that i couldn't imagine myself just doing the same this only this job and Mm. i quite liked looking at problems i was drawn to radiology because i liked problem solving but Mm. i did like the idea of looking at problems at scale and so when i was in my fourth year of radiology training I started doing a master's in health economics um, at the LSE it was like a two-year master's program so I did that at the same time which was which was quite a lot of work but it really helped to expand my horizons I started just seeing understanding how health systems works, how health economics works how you just look at you know value-based pricing just all of these things that I had no idea about and so I always knew that when I would do a the job I wanted to do in the end, I didn't know what it was, but I wanted to solve problems at scale.
0: Mm.
2: And so when I finished my radiology training, I, didn't, I had a, a hybrid job. So I was a consultant at UCLH. So I did that job for three days a week. And for two days a week, I did policy work. So I worked mm-hmm. at NHS Digital and at the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, looking at strategic stuff to do a digital health. Uh, and that helped with my health economics master's. That was the kind of thing that spurred that on.
1: Mm. So, just kind of for the listeners, when you talk about health policy, what does that actually mean? Because as far as the, the standard medic, they know get through training as quickly as possible, reg, consultant, 95, with a bit of practice, practice on the side. Now you've thrown in words like health policy. What on earth does that mean, playing the devil's advocate? That's
2: a, that's a good question. i thought, who knows? <laughs> no, so, uh, so, I... Uh, <laughs> so, I think it's just about making system system level decisions. So, mm. you know, what kind of what kind of system level decisions should you make? So, you know, if you're gonna if you want to improve the structure of how data flows in the NHS, for example, you'll have to think of that not just in your hospital, but you're gonna have to think mm-hmm. about that across you know all 200 or so NHS hospital trusts, across all the CCGs, across all of the you know the GP practices. But, so, you know, policy is just about looking at the health system as a whole. In the UK, you have a number of organisations. So it can get really confusing. Probably the big one that everyone knows is NHS England. So mm-hmm. that's the you know that's organisation through which, you know, a lot of the money is funnelled uh, and that makes a lot of the policies and decisions that then filter down to, like, hospitals or, or primary care. Uh, so I was working in that space. And I found it valuable, but I, I think it wasn't really for me in the end. I wanted something that was... A bit more fast-paced and where i could see the results of change and iteration very quickly which isn't really what happens you know you can't just can't you just can't physically do that at a policy level it would be unsafe mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so that's what you know so is it around that same time that we you know started thinking about creating hexarad
0: yeah and and so yeah go on. yeah so that's what i want to know now so now that you have you've unearthed yourself a little bit more, you've discovered more about yourself, what you like and what you don't like. How does Hexarad mm-hmm. come about? Tell us that about that journey.
2: Uh, so actually the idea for Hexarad came when I was finishing off my radiology training and uh, mm-hmm. there were four of us who worked together, uh, who are co-founders, and we're all really good friends and we all could see this problem of it didn't matter, how hard we worked, there were just still delays in getting patients diagnosed. So that's quite a frustrating mm. thing, first of all. And I thought the reason why that is is because just the volume of scans is increasing exponentially. The mm. so nature of medicine yeah. has changed. You know, people are more chronically ill, but the number of radiologists, you know, hasn't really changed. Uh, was growing, but not growing at pace. So we wanted to solve that problem, this supply-demand mismatch. But at mm. the time, it was in the mid. You know, it was like. around that time we were thinking about it and there was all this excitement about tech and AI and and, you know what it could do and we were really excited about that too but we felt like something was missing from that dialogue and I think Abdul, coming back to your point like technology just isn't enough like it's great healthcare is about great people Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: what we really liked training together was we worked as you know, we were friends, but there was a real community feel uh, within our radiologists, like training cohort, just across all the registrars, and we could see that you know that was a great place to work. But it just meant that you have really good outcomes for patients. And if you zoom out and you look at healthcare, just you know whether that's a small rural clinic in like Bangladesh mm. or you're talking about a big you know hospital on like the east coast of the US, community and mm. teamwork makes great healthcare. And any technology you build should always be focusing on that how can you get mm. people to do the best job that you can so that yeah. you know led us to to create hexarad um, and our mission at hexarad is fast and accurate diagnosis for everyone everywhere and so we built a tech platform and you know that's built to help us achieve our mission but it really is about empowering people to do the best job they can in a community where they feel nurtured
0: a common question that we always get from a lot of our listeners because a lot, a lot of our listeners are medics and they want to go beyond borders is taking an idea to market if you can take us through the first few Mm. steps of you know when the idea pops into your head how do you then actually go about building this whole astronomical platform now
2: so i think one of the i was i I was at this uh, conference in san francisco last week actually and there's Mm. one someone says something really great which is be obsessed with your market not your product so when we first so you know, and what that means is really, really understand your problem and understand the mm. market, the product will change. So if you just have if you have your hat on this idea of like, this is the thing I want to build and you only think about that, you will just lose sight of opportunity. And so when we first started, we knew there was this problem, but you know, was our idea the platform that we've got now? No, it wasn't. It was, you know, mm. can we can we just build something where we start helping to have a platform that radiologists can report scans? And you know, let's just start with that. So that's what we started. And we got a partnership early on with Alliance Medical, which is a scanning company, Uh, found one of our early mentors, who's now chairman of our board, who was amazing, Charles So He really supported us, kind of gave that courage. So what I'd say to anyone thinking about it is just really, really understand the market. Like the problem you're trying to solve, your solution will change. So keep iterating and just go for it. You can spend ages like thinking about it, but you know, the best thing to do is just start you know uh,
0: mm. Reid
2: Hoffman who is this famous you know entrepreneur is the founder of LinkedIn he has this really great thing where he says you know your first product your MVP should be embarrassing because if it's not embarrassing it means you waited too long you know you should build it get feedback change mm. and then just keep going like that like don't don't spend too long in your head or just planning for perfection which is what medics do right um you yeah. know they want everything to be perfect but you just have to go for it and talks about kind
1: of the idea to concept to market how, tell us a bit more about Farzana, the medic, term CEO, co-founder, entrepreneur. How does that happen? How did you change as an individual and person?
2: And in medicine, really actually do carry through really well to entrepreneurship. So, um you know, and actually I think I wrote a piece about this, but a really good example of this is, you know, like your first day as a junior doctor, you know, your, my, my first day, like being on the floor, right, it was like day two or something. And, you know, you're given this bleep and you're just so terrified. And you <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like oh god and it's just you know and, and then actually all I remember is a chaos you know <laughs> that really tough, yeah sick patients and um, and so you really are just taking some of the basic things that you learn in medical school but really you're having to think on your feet you're having to adapt you're having to learn a whole bunch of new skills really 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 quickly that is what entrepreneurship is so actually as junior mm. doctors we are perfectly trained for it because when you start in a hospital no one gives you any training right sometimes you might even start they're not even giving you a freaking password yeah. So so in fact that kind of you know being able to absorb information really quickly and make decisions and think on your feet and you know not not break down uh you know <laughs> in, a, in a big mess on the hospital floor that is really good training for being an entrepreneur so i think Medicine, probably more than other careers, really does help you get, it gives you confidence, right, to walk into a new mm. situation. Um, and then I've taken lots of the lessons I learned. So, the, you know, that community aspect is really important part of what we do at HexRad. We're very values-led. So, you know, the values, I guess, are the, the things that we think are important for company culture. So, you know, teamwork, we've got six. And we, we build, you know, when we hire staff, whatever mm. we do, we always come back to those, company culture Mm. and those values because when we were doctors, we saw that even though you don't really talk about culture in the nhs and you don't really make a concerted effort to do it if you work in a good hospital it's just there everybody knows what they're doing and why there is just a degree of integrity and always thinking about patients that we wanted to take into the kind of the business world and Mm. what's really funny is now there's lots of conversations coming about how important that is but in healthcare we, we already know that that's important that's how we work so when you do that and you incentivize people and you motivate people, then your people, you know, do the best job that they can, which is kind of what you see when you're a doctor as well.
1: No, definitely. And the following question from that is, how are you finding uh, navigating the space as an ethnic minority, as a female, um, leading this kind of tech-driven solution in healthcare, which, funnily enough, a lot of the products until recently were founded by non-clinical individuals. How Mm. is uh, Operating in that space,
2: yeah, a few things. So I think from a clinical perspective, uh, it definitely you know it means you really you know so it's that kind of being you know, obsessed about your market. Like you understand intuitively, you just have all this knowledge about the problems that exist. Mm. You know, from a very very specific micro level because you've been there. So that's been really really helpful. And I think it's much easier to learn the business stuff than it is the clinical <laughs> stuff. But I would say that so. <laughs> mm. uh, so I, th- I think you know, being a subject matter expert on that is, gives all like all of your listeners who who want to build something in the space that they you know they know they've got this huge advantage, right? Um, coming back, like being a woman in an ethnic minority, you know, it's, it can be really hard actually. Um, mm. So I've got I've got amazing co-founders um, who are really really supportive, and you know they're my, you know some of my closest friends, and they really give me uh, when I'm when I You know, when I come across uh, times of discrimination, which I'll tell you I do, Uh, I think it's that network of people around you who are just like, you know, just ignore it. What do they know? Um, Mm. But it is really hard. Yeah, for sure. It's really, really hard Um, because I think, you know, as probably many of your listeners know, there is a lot of talk about, you know, opportunities and, you know, initiatives. But invariably, you just come across, you know, prejudice and your only option is just to keep on going.
1: Yeah, I think I always think of there's loads of initiatives, but how much of that actually translates to real life practical times and situations. Uh, But really glad to know that you do have a supportive network. And before I'm asking this question, the second question is there's always this concept of, don't found a company with friends don't find company with people you're close to or work colleagues just in case things go wrong as i'm sure all starts to really be expressed as conflict what are your thoughts on that or if you've ever read that before kind of found, mm-hmm. you just kind of ended up finding it with your close friends
2: well i think we've become closer through being founders actually so that's a good point okay. we weren't like best friends when we started but we were all friends okay all so of us who founded the company myself amy sam and jay and then tim who's our cto joined after we found him in essence he's like a late stage founder so mm-hmm. i guess in many ways that that is the case so a few of us were like you know, amy and i were really good friends sam and jay were friends and um, sam and tim have been friends but we weren't all like a big circle of friends <laughs> okay, so that, that is that is true but i think it's just like any relationship um i think being like co and we've got you know a larger number of co-founders than most people which helps us quite a lot but it's just like it's like a marriage isn't it? it's any relationship it's just clear communication you know making sure you're all completely aligned about what you're trying to do and when it goes wrong, to just learn and not blame each other. Yeah. Um, so I've certainly found it a really rewarding journey, but I think you have to be very careful about who you do pick as your founder. You end up speaking to them more than you will most of your closest friends, more than yeah. like you know some of your family. I mean, there are some days where I speak to them more than I speak to my husband. <laughs> <So> <laughs> you definitely need. I'm sure you guys probably. Need
1: I know that. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just hoping my wife doesn't hear it, but
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, was it, <laughs> Literally that,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the, like you know, I recently had like um, a party for my son, and actually, all uh, you know, all of the others came with all of their other halves, and it was we all met each other's other halves. Right, but it's the first time we've come with all the children, and it was uh-huh. really funny because all the other halves know, like even that you know that you just everyone knows everything that's going on at all times yeah. <laughs> when they get home. Yeah, so I think I think you know, I think it just depends. I mean, your question about you know, just I think finding people who. A passionate you know can add something so be very clear about what the skill set is that you know people are adding be very clear about what you want to achieve I think that's a that's a that can often be the thing that you know because in the beginning as you guys have probably seen starting something is really hard it's a lot of like yeah it's a bit of drudge work keep on going you know you might not get any in your case listeners but you know if you don't start you'll, you'll never get there but you need to, you both need to be on the same page about mm. how much work you want to commit Definitely. Yeah.
0: absolutely Absolutely. Um. In terms of Hexarad now, so I was looking at the website, looking at the platform, very beautiful. You can see a lot of hard work and effort has gone into it. But one thing I know about the, the health tech environment, the med tech environment, is how much red tape there is and how difficult it is to get a product like that into an NHS system, uh, into our health system. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us about how you, the first steps, the first days of how you got your product and how you shipped it and how you got your your first customer i think everyone loves to hear how you got your first customer
2: Yeah, so our first customer actually was was alliance medical so they're a, they're a scanning mm. provider but they they scan across like a, a largest scanning provider in europe so they scan across like you know the majority of the nhs mm. and um so we started we, we managed to get a meeting uh, with them and so we had a conversation and then we rocked up and we were I think we were quite naive, but we were really enthusiastic. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> Charles, who you know is now our chairman, he was the um one of the exec directors there. And so he met us mm. and, and so in the beginning we had a we had a, a joint venture with them. So really we were they were, you know, we were working with them to build up this service
0: so mm. that we could
2: facilitate getting the scans reported across their sites because they're huge. And so um but you but you know, but getting to that point where we launched that joint venture. Which was the first step. You know, now we're no longer mm. a joint venture, they're just one of our you know, really good customers. You know, that took nearly a year and a half of negotiations. So we had this oh, initial wow. conversation, they were like, You guys are great, we put some proposals together, and then we just had to keep on at it and chase it. You know, okay, you know, mm. where are we? Where are we? Um, and it was just all about, you know, eyes on the prize, just keep going. Um so mm-hmm. yeah, it wasn't it wasn't like, you know, it would have been nice. We met them, they loved us, we signed we had a hand
1: <laughs> yeah. next
2: month off it wasn't that it just required because they were busy, they had lots of other priorities, but we just we were very persistent. And so I think when you say, you know, coming back to your other question about how do you roll out across the NHS, I think it is persistence. Mm. Uh, Amy is our chief commercial officer, so she's also a radiologist, so she leads that whole side of things. So she's, you know, very thoughtful with making sure that the value that we bring is articulated mm. to our customers. They understand exactly, you know, why working with us is going to help them and we're also mm. solving an, a problem that is important enough for people to want to solve it. I you need mm, to get exactly. the scans, you know, the scans reported for patients. That's probably the other thing is that if it's a problem that's not on the top priority of a decision maker's like list, they just mm. will push it back. So it's also, you know, coming back to that product market fit. It's like is it solving an absolute problem that needs to be solved? If it's a problem that will be nice to kind of be solved, That is a difficult thing to get traction for in a market where you're not going straight to a consumer, I think.
1: The essence or the core essence of Hexarad is essentially using tech, facilitating the manpower and the kind of the supply side to kind of report these scans that kind of overflowing and overwhelming um, kind of hospitals, institutions and trusts. Is that kind of the premise of how Hexarad works? Yeah, Just for our listeners here.
2: Yeah, so it's, it's a radiology platform and, the, and it's an end-to-end radiology platform. So what makes the platform special is an engine which is called Godfrey, uh, after Godfrey Hounsford. Is That's the founder such a the sick team. name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, a radiologist in <laughs> But yeah, so um, and what the engine does is, is a collection of data and algorithms that really helps to get the right scan to the right person at the right time. And so on the platform, we have, you know network of radiologists so if hospitals want to get their scans reported uh, they can do but we've also launched software called optirad which helps hospitals better manage their own resources too so mm-hmm. it's always like if you think of it as prevention and cure you can use optirad to optimize everything that you already have which is your existing resource how you wrote to them you know just making that as efficient as possible and then mm. uh the report rad, which is our reporting service, helps you when you kind of optimize all you can, but you still need more manpower to get the scans read, you can use report rad, So we've got a network of radiologists on the platform. And then, mm. you know, we're doing some, we're some AI tools to help radiologists work faster and better as well.
1: Mm. No, that, yeah. So that's incredible. And the second question is, a bit more business side of things is in essence you have like a marketplace in terms of kind of the demand and supply right you get scans that needs to be reported how did you build up that network of radiologists because the last thing is you get a thousand scans that need to be done and i imagine the beginning maybe you guys did the kind of the the the, the graph and did it yourselves Mm -hmm. how do you build that thing and i'm saying that because there are other companies that do exist that do a similar offering
2: yeah exactly so you're completely right It's, it's this chicken and egg problem that you said um of the like, you can't really get the scans until you have the radiologists, but you can't get the radiologists <laughs> the scans. Yeah. In the beginning, yeah, just to get stuff off the ground, we reported some of our scans. We had friends who, you know, took a bit of a punt on us, said, yeah, all right, we'll join. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and actually, that's how we developed our tech, this allocative efficiency engine, was because in the beginning we didn't have any money. And so, you know, when we had like five scans and five radiologists, it was really easy to understand how you divide those scans. But when you suddenly mm. got 2,000 scans, and you've got twenty radiologists. How do you do that, right? And so I mean, that's when we first developed the first version of like all of our workflow tools. Um, in terms of getting radiologists, I think it really comes back to that community. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really important for us. So, you know, yeah, we're building this tech platform, but it's there to enable and empower people to do the best job they can. So, we, you know, are very focused on the radiologist experience. We, you know, when they report with us, they get chairs in the company Uh, we send them a snack box every like Mm. month healthy snacks we have like in-person events and dinners and learnings we did our first that cool day of cpd learning uh, in september at soho house it was really nice so it really for us is about building that community of radiologists because when we started we thought you know we were these registrars at saint george's in this pretty skanky registrar room but it was really nice because we all worked together and we loved working together. So we thought, well, how can we bring that environment, that community feel to, you know, to this platform idea? And so I think that's helped us and that we've got to continue to be focused. And our radiologists are amazing. You know, they're some of our biggest advocates. They've helped us so much. But, yeah, that's that's the kind of the value. Yeah, we're trying to do. I, was,
1: I was going to say, I think. Uh, obviously, I don't know until you mentioned that, whereas I think with Hexaride, from the experiences that you've had, obviously it shaped you as an individual. And it's, when you're reporting for Hexaride, it's like kind of the golden days, the, the back in the day type thing where you have that team and you all looked after each other and it's fun, right? And despite the number of scans and, I don't know if you have a, a Hexrad building or reporting hub where people go in and it's like they enjoy coming into work to kind of report these kinds of it's, it's it's that thing they miss or they're craving, especially as medics. But I love the fact they incorporated it and I think maybe it's one of the reasons as to why Hexrad is successful and it continues to grow at skill.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think so. We don't actually have a... we, we in the beginning we did have um, a place, but most people just want to work from home. Yeah. So the challenge for us is how do we, you know, how do we bring that community feel? And we're always asking us, ourselves that question and I think we mm. there's always something more that we can do um so yeah for sure it's, it's this is this continuous like iteration of how can we make the experience better what can we do that then makes people feel valued because I think that is what when I talk to like, healthcare professionals who are working and are kind of leaving the NHS a big part of it is people just saying they don't feel valued anymore yeah mm, um mm. and I think that's such a core part of like your human need to feel valued in what you do you know i think that's so
0: important actually the community factor to all and every company out there like you said above money the one thing that we want is that camaraderie that friendship um that ability to talk to each other and confide in each other even when when we're in the low moments um so yeah no i really think that's so important the fact that you're looking after the experience and building a community um it makes sense why so many people are running into radiology. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Come and join right
1: <laughs> <laughs> No, definitely. Um, a few questions before we, we, we let you go, because I know you're super busy for Ozana. Um What does your role look like now? Are you solely running and growing Hexarad or are you still doing clinical medicine? Because I know there always comes that difficult moment do you stay? Do you do a bit of both? So, where are you now in that stage?
2: No, I'm full-time within Hexarad, actually. Okay. So I, I still have my life practice. I report some scans for Hexarad to maintain, um, you know, my clinical skills. I don't want to lose yeah. them. But yeah, I, I don't do that much of it. Uh, it's just... Mm. and But it, I think it comes to a point where you know that there is... You, you kind of have to have make that choice, right? You have to you have to make that decision as to... Do you kind of hedge your bets and try and do a bit of both, which i tried to do for a long time? Or do you think, now I'm going to... I believe this is going to work, so I'm going to... I'm going to take a pun on myself like the best advice i ever got was from a radiologist called simon walsh uh, who mm. years later when i said to him this advice changed my life he, he genuinely was like, i cannot remember and i wish i followed my own advice but he said you know <laughs> if you don't believe in yourself then no one else is going to believe in you so always mm. you know, always believe in in, in yourself uh, and that really helped me to you know when i was thinking about leaving and focusing on hexafide that really did help me to to make that decision
1: no, no definitely absolutely. Um, I think you've had an incredible career to date. It seems like you've had variety, diversity, highs and lows. um, And I'm sure from the outside, it looks like an overnight success, but it's it's years and years of sticking at it, persistence. Like you mentioned with the first um, partnership with Alliance Medical, I I would never have thought it took a year, right? Um, Before we end, do you have any advice for budding entrepreneurs that are clinicians or are thinking to leave. They're not too sure. They may be sitting on an idea. Um, what can you say to them?
2: Um, so you know you can you can you can do things simultaneously, right? You can you can think about your idea, do as much of it as you can. I think get as much feedback as you can. That's always really helpful. Make as you know many connections and networks as you can. That's always really helpful too. And that's all stuff that you can do. At some point, you may need investments, so just think about that. You know, mm. uh, like how far can you go, how far can you bootstrap? When we started, we we, we have raised uh, Series A, but in the beginning, we just bootstrapped. And that made mm. it much easier for us when we went to market to raise money because we mm. had already shown that people would pay for our product. So if you can do that, that makes it easier. You know, we're, I think we're entering like a downturn now, so it is yeah. more difficult to, to raise money. So, you know, just think about exactly the problem that you're trying to solve. There are still pockets of money and, and innovation. There are some programs, I think, in the NHS. I, I didn't do them, but... Um, I know Amy did the on clinical entrepreneurs fellowship. Mm. you know mm. I've heard really good things about that. So I think yeah work on your product, really understand your market. so just be open to change as well you know don't be so don't don't fall in love with your own product so you don't yeah. want to change uh, you know you might iterate and you might come up with something much better.
1: No definitely Absolutely. That's, that's the golden line they always say don't, don't fall in love with with your product mm. be open to change but fall in love with the problem.
2: Exactly. Exactly that. Exactly. It's like you guys, don't fall in love with your podcast. <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> uh, I think it's too far it's too far gone for that. <laughs> but um, uh yeah. Fazada, I want to say a massive thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to kind of sit with us, share your story, share your journey. I'm sure it's inspired a lot of people. It definitely inspired us and it's always interesting and fun for us to learn from sure. other people are up to. And it goes to show that medicine isn't the end or be all. There's so much more you can do with medicine and the, the thing we're focusing on now with medicine is we know the workforce is disgruntled. A lot of people are leaving the profession, mm. but there are things you can do with your degree, with your experience. And I think you are a perfect example of that. You haven't forsaken mm. healthcare medicine and kind of gone into banking. Right. So um, it's a nice example. We love kind of sharing your story and bringing people like yourself onto the show.
2: Yeah. And that's not the case with, you know, all my co-founders, uh, are the same, you know. Sam, who is like our CFO, he's you know he did physics at university, then he became an oil trader, then he became a doctor. Oh wow! Now he's doing Hexarad. Uh, Uman Patel is one of our non-exec directors on the board. He was paediatrician. He still does like a day a week at Frimley, but he was one of the early mm. team at Babylon. He's now chief clinical information officer at Microsoft. And Charles, who I've mentioned a couple of times, he's our mentor, you know, he's he's an orthopedic surgeon from South Africa. He used to be Nelson Mandela's doctor, but he traveled oh, the wow. world with Nelson Mandela, stayed at the White House, did some amazing things, and then left and you know, kind of went into you know entrepreneurship. So yeah, for sure, there are loads of you know, loads of opportunities uh, as a doctor. Oh. We're a doctor heavy company, but yeah, with quite interesting background. So yeah,
1: no, definitely that's amazing. But no, thank you so much.
2: No worries. I love you to speak to you both. Thank you for having me on.